Hello and welcome to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and streaming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm I'm at a friend's house, and it's a little bit different setup here. I hope you can hear and see me okay. Um, I've been here with some great um, activists, uh, citizens, you know, working at the Capitol here, and I know we've got people in Washington State that are doing the same thing. And in fact, in every state of this great a union, this great republic, we have got citizens that are going to their legislators during legislative session, just like we are, and they're doing great work. I want to um, to make sure that you hear that the views expressed in this show um, might not necessarily align with Children's Health Defense, where we are streaming uh, to our wonderful CHD TV. Um, in the next couple of uh, shows, as we are in legislative session, we'll probably get a little bit political, um, talking about some legislation and different things, and just know that what we're saying is our opinion only, and you know, not of that of our of our host here. Um, and we are primarily sponsored by people in Washington State. This particular show, who give to our 501c4, generously donates so that free speech. Um, is alive and well on the air and that we can talk about these things. So we're really grateful for our donors. If you like what you're hearing and you want to donate, please do give to our our action fund to keep this show on the air. Um, and that said, we've got two amazing hours and some of it's going to be overlapping. So buckle up. We've got some great stuff going on. Um, in Idaho, we have Javier Figueroa, my co-host, who's coming on. Hello, Javier. Hello, Bernadette. Thank you for being here. And with my my impromptu setup, uh, anything goes wrong, I trust you're just going to take over and run the show. There we go. <laughs> Which means you might get a word in edgewise. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now. Uh, anyway, so... Um, yeah, so this this show is is really we are highlighting for for individuals some really great information today. Staying informed, what this radio show is all about, means that you don't just listen to the marketing messaging. If it's on the news, if it's coming from a government official, and it's talking points, it's marketing messaging. Exactly. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's false. Sometimes it's gray area. But you need to know your homework. Sometimes you get truth out of people you don't trust. Sometimes right. you get misstatements out of people you do trust, right? And, you know, really, it's a lot of work to be an informed citizen. Um, but that's what we try to help you with. That's what we try to help you with here. And, you know, the beauty of COVID, Javier, has, has sort of been that all of these issues that we have been dealing with as far as uh, problems with government oversight of pharmaceutical products, especially vaccines, and problems with data being mispresented to legislators in order to raise fear for them to make certain legislative decisions and to vote certain ways. Um, that's been going along on a long time, but we've been trying to educate for that. But COVID has made 
a lot of legislators and individuals ready to listen because they're witnessing things. Um, and what we've got today is one of the main, um, one of the main data manipulation tools that is being used to strike fear to remove exemptions to childhood vaccines has been kindergarten numbers vaccination rates at the entry of kindergarten. And with that, I'm going to bring on Carl Kanthak because nobody describes what I'm hitting at here better than Carl. So Carl, welcome to an informed life radio. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share today. Yeah, you bet. Now you've been on before and you and I have been working together for years. And I remember when I first met you, you're talking about they're monkeying with the rates. They're not telling full rates to raise fear. And I'm like, Carl, you know, that's true. But what does it matter? Because, because you know, we, need, we don't have safe products. We need people to get used to lower rates so that people are making personal vaccination decisions based on health and not on this. But you're like, Bernadette, you don't get it. You don't get it. It's, it's, we got to expose the lie because the lie is driving some other agenda, ultimate. And you were so spot on. It took me a while. But once I got on board the Carl train, I'm like, <laughs> you know, and then it was happening state after state, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, Carl has for us, um, he's in Washington state. He's been on a school board. He owns his own business. He is kind of a self-taught data guru, just amazing guy. So I'm going to just kind of, um, unless um, Javier, if you have any questions to begin with for Carl, Oh, we can't hear you. Oh, nope. We're, we, we lost your sound. Well, while he fixes his sound, we're just going to go ahead and turn you over, Carl, and let you uh, begin your presentation. Well, you know what? Let's let's watch that. Can we watch that video first, that Twitter video? Is yes, that possible? Yes, this Nathan, time? if you could that'll please kinda, play for us that Twitter video. Of, uh, that lays the background for us. And then also, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a per speaking as a private person today. So I'm not okay. representing my school district or in anything like that. So yeah, right. I, I'm ready when you are then. We want this over and it's not that simple. We're still having 125,000 deaths from COVID a year, 125,000. Yeah, and, and Kat, I just mentioned the idea of the falling vaccination rates. And Dr. Manuel, you wrote on that, a, a new piece in the New York Times that analyzes those falling rates for children in the United States. And you say it's not just because of COVID. Uh, you write in part this. The decline is rooted in longstanding policies among some states that allow, for instance, for non-medical exemptions, failures to rigorously enforce vaccination requirements and inadequate public health campaigns. Here's how the decline can be reversed. States should eliminate non-medical exemptions. States should also end extensions granted to school children to complete routine vaccinations and undertake vigorous community outreach and education. Children age 14 or older should be allowed to obtain, without parental permission, all missed childhood polio, measles, and other recommended vaccinations. And finally, states should undertake the necessary technology upgrades and data standardization to improve data links among schools, local and state immunization programs, and the CDC to track routine childhood 
immunization rates. Uh, Dr. Manuel, many people listening to this probably think, well, that sounds like common sense, but it hasn't been the case. Where are these roadblocks? Which states or jurisdictions or communities need to change? Well, we've had a lot of states that have uh, very expansive exemptions that allow people to exempt for personal views, for religious views, and really if they just don't want their kids to get a vaccine, uh, Wisconsin, Idaho uh, are high on that list. Interestingly, there are red states which say no exemptions except medical exemptions, like Mississippi and West Virginia, and they're very high on the number of people who've gotten vaccinated. Mississippi is the top state in terms of childhood vaccinations in the country, a deep red state, which doesn't do a lot of other things well in terms of public health. But on vaccines, they are no, you can't, no BS. You got to get your vaccine and they enforce it. On the other hand, Washington, D.C., we're pretty lax on whether, you know, we have a requirement, but pretty lax about enforcing it. And that enforcement is absolutely critical uh, for kids. And when we don't get kids vaccinations, they get sick, as we're seeing in Columbus, Ohio. We saw in the polio outbreak in New York. Those are serious, serious health problems. And by the way, they cost all of us extra money. And uh, we don't have a lot of money to spare uh, on preventable diseases. Man, there is so much wrong with that. <laughs> Somebody asked me to, to do a rebuttal, and I forget what the word count was, 1,200 words or something. And I, <laughs> I, I don't know where to start on that. But, uh, you know, when you look at that and the framing from that, uh, the uh, news guy, you know. But what about the children? That's how they get everybody. It's always that uh, thing. But yeah, let's go ahead and I've got the slides prepared and we'll show exactly what is happening here. So, uh, oh, perfect. See that? Look what I did, Bernadette. <laughs> that looks great. And then uh, here we go with, uh, uh, so what is, what, what's behind the major media claims of dropping vaccination rates and blaming the use of non-medical exemptions? And then, so since we were able to play that, these uh, uh, here are just captures from those screens. So then th uh, what he, what this Eman Dr. Emanuel's uh, uh, video piece there is based on this opinion that he had in New York Times. And then uh, he's gotten a lot of play. So I grabbed this, the first uh, two chapters, uh, first two paragraphs here, and then I highlighted their childhood vaccination rates have plummeted since the beginning of the pandemic. And um, here are the, that's again, the screen captures from what he just had. So in an output point there. And so the question is, are childhood vaccination rates falling? No, they can't, not for children that are already in school. Why not? Because vaccination is a school entry requirement. Students who are already vaccinated will always be vaccinated. <laughs> vaccination rates can't drop for kids who are already in school. The use of non-medical exemptions by school children has been holding steady at about 2.2% for 10 years, 1.9% this current year. 16 of the 17 required school shots are given by age seven. Exemption rates can't push vaccination rates to be any lower than 100% minus the exemption rate, which is this year, uh, that year was 1.9%. And then, so what are the latest kindergarten exemption rates and vaccination rates? And this is what he was citing. So. This is the uh, from the CDC, the MMWR. Mm -hmm. So the kindergarten rates in uh, 2021, and 
They in the box there, approximately 94% for all required vaccines, approximately one percentage point lower than the previous year. The exemption rate is 2.2%. And the way that they do this is that the report closes November 1, so 60 days after school starts. Now, four of the 16 injections are CDC scheduled between your fourth and seventh birthday and kindergarten enrolls at age five and transitional kindergarten is at age four. Now, what the states are trying to do is that if you're in school, they're trying to close that three-year administration window, which is there specifically because of the wide variation in children's development at that age, so that a doctor has that, has that leeway uh, if they are going to vaccinate to know that we're safe in there to be able to do that. And they're trying to compress that uh, three years for a five-year-old kindergartner down to one year or for a four-year-old transitional to one day. And, uh, you know, that's perhaps not a wise thing. And then there's a, we had a minor 1% year drop. And when you look at uh, the, the families that are, have the biggest propensity for uh, exempting ha have been leaving the schools because of the masking and all of the other COVID policies. So then here is the, uh, you know, here's the exact citation out of the paper there. So you can see the non-medical exemption, 1.9% total exemption rate actually went down 0.3% from 2.5 to 2.2. So that right there blows his whole premise. The recent declines in the states have been widely attributed to disruptions in public health services caused by the pandemic. But this explanation is largely incorrect. Right. False. That's exactly what caused it. It's because the schools are too busy doing all this other business to grab every single kid and document every single injection that child has had. So he mentions a number of states in his little, uh, uh, in the article and then here. And when I went through and looked at it is that exemptions are down 3% to 1.3% in every state that he cited, right. except for Idaho was up 0.6%, but Idaho is so small, 0.6% of the kindergarten is 131 students. The real driver of complete rates below 100 minus the exemption percentages are the conditional grace period, no documentation, non-compliant and out of compliance statuses. So I've kind of got this color coded here and you can see, but again, all of the red highlights is where the rate has actually dropped. And, uh, and then you see the real driver of these rates below 100 minus the exemption rate is the out of compliance, no documentation. Uh, he cites Maryland you know, having this extremely low rate, even though they're a progressive blue state. And uh, and that's because it lists here that 8.3% 8 of the students had no documentation. So the next question would be, all right, so since we know that from that level up, everything is fine, well, maybe we're, maybe the incoming toddlers are a problem, uh, that they also track that. And uh, so the number of toddlers that have zero vaccines actually went down. So here's that. Uh, here's a similar table for them, and then on the bottom line, the number of no of children with no vaccinations dropped from uh, 1.4 down to 1 percent, which is uh, actually a lot of us have been expecting the rates to go down after this, you know, the COVID fiasco. It's right. kind of surprising it's not in some ways, but that's the facts right now. So let's just work with what the facts are as they are. So does ending school exemptions increase population vaccination rates? No, families with strong convictions do not respond to law changes by resuming or beginning to vaccinate, they leave the schools. 
Obviously, if only vaccinated students are allowed to attend school, then schools will measure with a higher vaccination rate, but that doesn't translate to the population rates. How do the full population vaccination rate surveys in states without non-medical exemptions compare? No exemption states are generally lower. So here's that. Here's the paragraph from the uh, uh, from the New York Times, and it says, you know, it says that uh, uh, the state with the highest uh, childhood is not Massachusetts, Vermont, or some other high-income blue state. It's Mississippi, a deep red state with the third lowest COVID vaccination rate. And then, and then he cites Mississippi is also re routinely ranks worst or second worst for other key public health measures, including infant mortality and overall life expectancy. Do you really want to be citing as an example of the benefit of vaccination, the state that has the worst infant mortality and other overall life expectancy? Some people might uh, actually say maybe there's a correlation there. So then, uh, then he's saying, how can we reverse this, Klein? And, and this is five of the six states that prohibit exemptions were well above the national average for vaccination rates in the 2021 year. That's in schools. That's not in the population. Right. So then this, this is the survey of the population of the kids before they're in school and subject to exemptions. School vaccination rates are not overall population rates. When schools do not offer non-medical vaccine exemptions, the children do not get vaccinated. They leave the schools. And then uh, the Health and Human Services has the country is divided up into regions. And in uh, region one, the only state that doesn't have a non-medical exemption is Maine, and it has the lowest MMR. In region three, where West Virginia is, this is another one that they like to point to because they've never had a non-medical exemption. Again, we've got the lowest MMR rate. And then uh, uh, his poster child for the lack of, of exemptions, Mississippi, is the third lowest and below the region average for students that are not in school. Again, clearly, if you only let vaccinated people go to school, then uh, th it's going to measure high. Now, the new data just came out last Thursday. Uh, oh, 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 it was it, it was in the news on Thursday the 12th, but the MMWR report from the CDC is dated the 13th. So that means that they put out the press release the day before they actually released the formal report. So that's a little sketch. And then you see that uh, Center for Disease, Disease Control Prevention released and dropped the rates. So, and then today I did a search this morning and, and there's all kinds of returns for falling rates, falling rates. And then you can see the continuity in the language already down because of COVID, falls again, already down because of COVID. And you see this, what's that uh, Operation Mockingbird or something when you see this duplication in all of the media. Health officials focus on kindergarten because that's where children enter school systems. Public schools typically require vaccinations as a condition of attendance, though some exemptions are allowed. This is from that article. Such exemptions were up slightly last year, but the CDC's Shannon Stokely said they are not the main driver of the decrease in rates. We went from 94 to 93. And, and actually, how, how uh, you know, if 1% is the tipping point between safety and disaster, what does that say about, uh, you know, the efficacy of vaccines again? They're not so worth then, it. Uh, rather, more schools have re relaxed their policies to allow enrollment while giving families a grace period to get shots. So then, uh, you know, then you can see the highlight there. That's the... Uh, January 13th uh, was the thing, and the, and the other byline was the 12th. And it's saying that for that uh, those kids that aren't in school yet, vaccination coverage is high and stable. The National Immunization Survey identified no decline in routine vaccination coverage. 
And then, uh, then there was another chart here showing the shift and uh, what happened to Dr. Emanuel's beloved Mississippi. So Mississippi had the largest decrease in vaccination rates, and this is in the schools. And this is supposed to be impossible because they don't allow exemptions. So here's the MMR, they dropped 5.4%. DTAP dropped 5.4%. Polio, 5.4%. Chickenpox, 5.4%. Now this graph here is to show the a bar chart. And if you look at the red line there, so that so the, the uh, yellow amber, that's exempt. And you can see it was 2.5% in 2019, 20, 2.2 in 2021, and then uh, is at 2.6 in 21, 22. And then the uh, gray and the uh, kind of orange is the, are the, are the interim ones. And then blue is complete. So what happens is what public health does is they will play with the shifting between the non-exempt categories and try to blame that on exemptions. This is how they uh, the, they will and they'll frequently cite the complete rate and they never say what the actual exemption rate is. When I uh, there was a, a sharp intake of air when I testified in the Washington state legislature and said, listen, the MMR exemption rate is only 2.9 percent. That's the maximum downward pressure. And if you could wave a wand and get everyone to vaccinate, that's the maximum upward pressure. And they were misrepresenting and making claims that there was, you know, one county had a, a rate below 88, uh, below 80 percent, 78 percent, which was a, that's its own whole talk by itself. But that they mess around with this. This is what they did in California. California had a 2.5 percent exemption rate and they were citing how many children had 16 of 16 injections by the first by November one of the school year, which was about 91 percent. And, uh, and then implying and conflating that and saying, okay, so the average person who doesn't study this stuff and you know, just peripherally paying attention to this, they're thinking, oh my God, we got a 10% exemption rate, which wouldn't be a problem, but when they're being fed all of this fear mongering, you know, one of the things when Bernadette and I were talking about it, when I was first working on this is that when they, is, you know, when people are scared, they can't think logically. And when I first started working on this, they, they were using the Washington State Department of Health was using a statistic for those 24 months olds. How many of them had 16 of 16 of a certain series called a 431314, which was 65 percent. And they were pretending that the other 35 percent were unvaccinated, panicked all of the legislators. And so they were incoherent and I got my legislator, I walked him through it, showed him what the real rates were, which was 96% plus vaccinated. And then once he calmed down, I was able to say, well, David, but wait, if it was 35% of parents exempting, if one in three families is having a problem with this program, why do you think the other two are right? I mean, we're at a close enough parity. And he thought, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then the next, uh, so then the next thing he cites is that he said that the California legislature governor approved a law that effectively eliminated non-medical exemptions. And the result was a 3.3% increase in the MMR rate. Now, the exemption rate was only 2.5%. So you can't get a 3.3% increase from a 2.5% exemption rate. So this is a little bit busy, but I'll, so this is showing percent vaccinated starting on the left, that's the 98, 99 year up to uh, 16, 15, 16. 
And then the horizontal red line, that's below that line are not exempt students. And then the tracking line, that's the diff that's what it was every year. So you can um, see that, uh, yes. I just want to say, remember a lot of our audience is audio only. So when you oh, okay. this, oh, explain yeah. a little bit, thank you. Yeah, I can explain that. So yeah, what we're looking at then is a graph that's showing the documented complete rate, which is how many of the kids that they can put and, and imagine that in California too, we're talking about California has anywhere between about 550,000 kindergartners. And it's a huge state. If, if, if California was its own country, it'd be the sixth largest in the world. And to try to put all of that data into a system 60 days after the school starts, you've got, I forget how many languages being spoken through that state. You've got big counties, little counties. LA County itself has 130,000 kindergarten students. So this is an extremely prodigious effort. So, uh, and, and if they, and if they want to make the rate go down, they just let it go down. It's not something that, you know, they have to work to have an accurate number. So anyway, what was happening was, is that they let the complete rate uh, bounce down to 92. And then at the same time, then the measles outbreak happened in Disneyland. Yes, ma'am. I just want to make it clear to our listeners who are new to this. So when you're talking about they just let it go down, they let the complete rate go down. What we're talking about is paperwork. That's so correct. parents are required to file paperwork that either, either says that they're up, the child has gotten all the vaccines for school entry that are required for that age, or they file an exemption. But there's always this gray area of a certain percentage of parents who turn in nothing and it, so if you want to play with the numbers, it's that parents who've not turned any paperwork and their vaccination status is not known or not up to date, but it does not mean that they're not vaccinated. So that is an area you're talking about. If they want to play with it, they can just, yeah, they can just claim that this is 100% of the data, but it's not because they don't have paperwork from a, a, a big swath of parents. That's correct. Yeah. What they'll do is they try to make this a binary where if anybody who's not documented, vaccinated, complete is by definition exempt and they're not. And so, and then especially with this kindergarten, that second MMR is a, a, a lot of those kids are just still in process and they're gonna get that at some point. And California uh, used to do a review in the spring and they would always pick up two to 4% because the kids are older, they've had more time to turn, turn in the paperwork, et cetera. So what this graph is showing here now, uh, in between 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, uh, there was a dramatic jump of the increase in the va vaccination rate, except SB 277 hadn't started yet. And so what they had done was, uh, is that when they were on uh, another chart here, just showing, so there was 6.9% of students in what's called the conditional category. So that's exactly what Bernadette was talking about. We had 90.4% are documented, vaccinated, complete for 16 of 16 by November 1. Two and a half percent were documented, exempt. But then you had 6.9% who either didn't have paper or just hadn't documented in some one, one or more of those injections. So what they did in that one year period, uh, SB 277 passed in June of 2015, but it didn't go into effect until 2016. So everybody that was in school 
was still in school the fall uh, past June 15th of 15 and then in the fall of, of 15 everybody was there and it didn't kick in until the following year after that so then uh, what they did was and is that uh, the state threatened to withhold funding from schools with high conditional entrance so they also moved the recording date from November 1 until the end of the school year so they'd be able to claim victory here and so uh, you, you can read in there that, you know, in addition, annual financial aid and compliance audits of local education for 2015, 16 and 16, 17. Uh, so it, it, they put pressure on them. They said, look, if you allow this condition now that so that whole uh, whatever you want to call that improvement could have done. It was done without SB 277 and could have been done without SB 277. So it, the, it was no, pure pressure to turn in your correct. paperwork, and that's all the it was. Yes, and, to improve yeah. the clerical. Uh, 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 yep. And it's it's important, Carl, that that one of the things that you said quickly, if a child like at this age, there are sixteen injections on the schedule, and that's if correct. they have fifteen of sixteen and they're missing just those one documentation on the one they're considered out of compliance and they fall in that gray area or some places call them non-vaccinated simply because they don't have, they, they're not they They only have vaccinated or exempt and they don't, you know, they assign them to one or the other. Um, that's correct. And so yeah, in California, that's another policy change they made. So prior to SB 277, if you were exempt for any of the vaccines, then the ones you got that you did receive the school, the class, the school, the county, and the state got no credit for it. So they treated you as if you came up in the in the statistics as completely unvaccinated. Well, they also changed that during that time period so that if you even if you only had MMR, then you'd be able to count. So again, they could claim that. Now, one of the things that they were being warned of is that students were going to leave the schools. And uh, uh, there's been claims that they didn't. But here it is. This is an article from 2019. And uh, there, at that point, they were saying that there was 35,000 fewer kindergarten students were enrolled this year than last year. And then, of course, the biggest single year jump was 8,783 from 1415 to 1516. What happened then? Well, it was SB 277. And then this is uh, an article showing uh, this was from the uh, San Francisco newspaper talking about how self-styled California refugees moving to Idaho to avoid vaccinating their kids. So this is clear, hard concrete proof that the people that don't want to vaccinate aren't going to vaccinate. Then, uh, then this year they have now California K-12 enrollment hits a two decade low. So beyond the vaccination issue, you've got all of the other things that are going on where there's an exodus out of California and an exodus out of California public schools. So then the next uh, uh, misrepresentation in this New York times was uh, claiming that uh, there's some connection between these the non-existent non rate falls and uh, as a resurgence of polio in July in Rockland County, north of New York City has made clear, this is not a problem limited to measles. So then when you look at, okay, there was a, the single paralytic case in Rockland originated overseas from an individual who received the oral polio vaccine. Uh, the oral polio vaccine that was received by this individual has not been used in the U.S. since 2000. And they just are, are leapfrogging off of this, you know, and then they, they're bragging about they've given 5,000 plus vaccines in the county since this confirmed summer case. Now, 
So somehow, so this person, and it's unclear whether this person themselves received it and then became ill, or if they had interaction with this person. And it requires some pretty intimate contact to get polio. So there are some questions there about that. And what they're trying to do is they're claiming, so they're, they're monitoring the sewage. Now, one of the problems with monitoring the sewage is that the injected polio vaccine does not stop transmission. So if you're exposed to either wild or vaccine derived uh, virus, it will colonize you and you will shed it for some period of time. Uh, there was one uh, a guy in England that was shedding for 30 years. So looking in the sewage doesn't do you any good because that's no indication of whether people are vaccinated or not because vaccinated people can do it. So then uh, IPV does not stop transmission of the disease. And then here's a uh, uh, little story from NPR, mutant strains of polio vaccine now cause more par paralysis than wild polio. But you've got one person that picked up polio from a person that had received the oral overseas has now somehow connected to the kindergarten vaccination rates. And they called it a resurgence. I mean, that <laughs> is like one person getting vaccine strain polio is a resurgence of polio. I mean, the, the, the absolute framing. Yes. And yes. I, I'm so grateful to you, Carl, for putting together this slideshow because what we're telling you here, Carl will share, we'll put it like on Informed Choice Washington website because you're gonna, whatever state you're in, you need to give this to your legislator or better yet invite Carl to explain it with the slideshow or show this, this radio show so that they understand the lies they're being told. Yeah. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you just read that article, you'd think, Oh my gosh, they must be opening polio wards in Rockland County, New York. And then they would show that picture, you know, that one famous picture with all of the iron lungs in that auditorium. And then you, when you look at the picture, it's like, Oh, there's no electricity. They're not hooked up. That's a promotional picture from the company. That's like showing cars on a showroom. So then, uh, then there's some uh, officials could not confirm where the individual received the oral polio vaccine was from or where the person who is ill encountered this person. And then just a, a, another citation about, you know, we stopped using the oral in, in the United States in 2000. Now, uh, this is a graphic actually that I prepared Bernadette specifically for the question, what about polio? Everyone panics. If you discuss any aspect of the vaccination policies or programs, it's what about polio? Well, uh, most people do not know that the primary transmission is fecal oral route, meaning the ingestion of the feces of an infected person. The, the IPV used in the industrialized nations does not stop transmission. IPV vaccinated persons will shed virus when defecating. So if you look at where they still have polio, it's uh, uh, countries where they practice open air defecation, which is an extremely uh, distasteful subject, but that's what's going on. And if you think culturally, uh, in some of these places, you know, if you don't have any pl plumbing, then it, it and, and if you were in a low population area, then clearly it would be probably more helpful to go out to the field than it would be to do it in a some container in the living room or whatever, you know. So you, there is some, you know, cultural legitimacy for that practice. But when you're, you know, when you're living in a city environment, then that's not it. So these are different citations there and just that the, one of the campaigns. And then, you know, here's an article. One billion people still practice open air defecation, endangering public health. 
So it's not, uh, you know, it's not the polio vaccine that's stopping polio. It's the fact that we have, uh, you know, we have flush toilets. We wash our hands afterwards with water that's chlorinated, uh, you know, with enough chlorine to kill a goldfish. So that's, uh, those are all pretty, pretty good uh, things. But that's one where, you know, it would require a complete uh, collapse of the sanitation system for us to have this. And one of the articles on the slide is talking about Afghanistan that once we went in and destroyed their systems. So then we have the next one is uh, Columbus, Ohio have been battling a measles outbreak with more than 70 cases reported in unvaccinated children and none among fully vaccinated children. So when you look at this uh, measles outbreak in Ohio among children who missed vaccines, uh, so 74 of those confirmed were among children who not been vaccinated. Nearly all of the confirmed cases were reported in infants, toddlers, and children under the age of five. And then it has uh, people considered fully vaccinated after two doses. The first dose is administered between 12 and 15 months, while the second is administered between four and six years. So when you have an outbreak in kids under five, none of them will be fully vaccinated, or very few. And then this shows, this was the first article, which I'd actually picked up and used in a talk in November. It's a daycare. So all of those people, they're not old enough. They're, the reason they're not vaccinated is not because of exemptions. The reason they're not vaccinated is because they're under 12 months. And prior to the vaccine, under kids that young never got measles because they had robust maternal immunity transmitted to them. And a vaccinated mother does not have the uh, the sufficient uh, uh, immunity to do that. In fact, I, I, I saw a story, I don't have a citation for it, but when they want to process immune glo globulin out of the blood supply, we're at a point now where the, the general population has such a low titer level that they're having difficulty even being able to uh, uh, extract that. Yeah, I so, remember those are C some CDC studies where there's they're trying to get better quality immune globulin. And they were really disappointed when they did third dose of MMR studies to see if they could get better quality immune globulin from their measles globulin donors. And it did not help. It did not significantly boost. You no, can that's... see why public health is panicking about measles because they erased herd immunity. They erased, um, uh, you know, when the measles vaccine was introduced in the 1960s, virtually every everybody in the United States age 15 and older had lifetime immunity and mothers, as you said, had very strong passive immunity and that pushed susceptibility to the age at which it's safest to get four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, in your early childhood there. And then you got lifetime immunity, but the shots 10 to 20% initial primary failure rate, um, 20% failure rate, or was it higher than that? No, it was 30% failure rate 20 years post second MMR. Right, secondary, and, yep, right, secondary failure. Third dose doesn't improve or lengthen duration uh, for, you know, for most people. And so therefore they know they've created a society that never existed before where you've got very young and older adults who are vaccinated, but fully susceptible to measles and able to spread. This is the situation. We just need frank discussion on the actual science and figure out what are we going to do? Are we going to bring in some ivermectin and some vitamin A and some vitamin D and the different things that we know help with viral infections? Or are we going to blame kindergarten? gardeners, lack of, and, and toddler lack of vaccination for what the public health has created. Okay, I'm off my soapbox.
No, that's 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 one of so here's a perfect example of of unintended consequences. And uh, uh, so so this is just a recap of the schedule, this slide. But then it's, you know, when the MMR was introduced, it was promoted as a one and done lifetime immunity. And then 20 years after that, they realized that this is not working out of the second dose. And now they're, they've been experimenting, as you say, with the third dose, and it just doesn't do it. And, and this actually does explain the panic, which is that they realize they have created a dry tinder environment here, uh, uh, terrifying dry tinder environment uh, when you really understand how ineffective. And then the third type of, so you have vaccine failure, primary vaccine failure, never worked, secondary, wears off, and then you have immune escape. And because of the pressure and the fact that they, they've been using the same vaccine for ever uh, in the West. So when you look at the, when they do the genotyping, I think the last one, I think ours was G that came through Clark County last time, which is the Ukraine and the Eastern European strain. And we're, we're, we're back at A. So the question is, does it, does this one even, even work? <coughs> Excuse me. So then uh, you go to the, so then it's also cited in here, you know, the, they're claiming that, or, or at least uh, the citation is that one in three of every 1,000 children who become infected with measles will die from respiratory and neurologic complications. Now, this is on the CDC website, and uh, I think that there's going to be potentially, um, this will be one of, uh, they're going to get some letters about where's your citation for that, but it could be that because they've pushed the susceptibility age into the infants and you have people that shouldn't be getting measles, getting measles, it's maybe they have created an environment in which de de measles is now gone from a one in 10,000 case rate to one in a thousand. Right. And, and Carl, the other, I've been looking at this closely too. That yeah. is one explanation is that it's been pushed into the more susceptible to severe cases population, but we also have lost the massive denominator. It used to be 4 million yes. people a year in the U.S. got measles. And so when you had a handful of complications, I think it, it turned out to be like one in 10,000, something like that. Yeah, I have a slide on that too. Yeah. yeah. The, the actual number, but now with symptom suppression, Correct. right? Um, they might be transmitting, but it's it's a lot of, you know, at various lev levels of Correct. your individual waning. You're still maybe trans, but nobody's getting symptoms, so they're not being tested for it. So the only ones you see are the hospitalized severe cases. Correct. And so, and if you've only got, you know, if, if in, in any given year there's, say, 85 cases and one person's hospitalized, well, the hospitalization rate of measles is one in 85. 85, yes. Oh, right? You know, so it's 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 not comparing apples and oranges at all. Not, you can't yeah. compare real fatality rates in this highly immunized population. That's correct. Well, and it, and if it had been one in a thousand in the 50s, there would have been 4,000 measles deaths per year. Or if, if it had been one to three per thousand, before the vaccine, we would have had 4,000 to 12,000 measles mortalities annually, which we absolutely did not have. There were so around we, 400 in, in 400, people with underlying yeah. health issues. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. In, in people that weren't there. And so here's that citation. So this is Roger M. Barkin, measles mortality, a retrospective look at the vaccination vaccine era. So he's writing this contemporaneously in 1975. And he cites that uh, he calculated that the death case ratio is about one in 10,000. 
except then when you look at the distribution, there's a 6.7 times higher in poverty counties. So that would mean, and you know, if you are a person of, uh, uh, you know, of low, poor resource sources, and you're in, uh, you know, you can see, in, uh, unfortunately, those darker uh, counties. So we're looking at a map, then, of the United States, and pretty much south of the Mason-Dixon line has a dramatically higher mortality rate. And of course, that would be partly responsible to the poverty and then also to the, uh, the uh, uh, prejudice. This was before the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, so this is his, 58 to 63, your map is. So that's it's what that one is. Prior yeah, to the release of the, the vaccine. And when we still had a lot of these places didn't have good infrastructure. They There was a lot of rural areas where they still have outhouses. Yes, um, They didn't have good nutrition. They didn't have no access to, to doctors and such. Yes. No indoor plumbing. So higher mortality rates were noted in places uh, with less than 10,000 pieces uh, people and in counties having a percentage of the population with incomes below poverty level. And then his conclusion is vaccines should be accessible to all populations, but intensive efforts need to be directed toward groups at high risk of dying from measles who are suffering from a myriad of other health, social and economic problems. So what I take away from that is what is a weaker endorsement than vaccine should be accessible because it's accessible. That's restricted. It's like, OK, you shouldn't use it. OK, you should. It should be accessible. So he had terms critical, compulsory. Uh, you know, necessary, recommended, vital, and his conclusion was it should be accessible. So, uh, so we've established now, basically refuted most of everything in that. I, I, I again, it, when they asked me to do a do it in a thousand words, I, I told them you, there's no way. Anyway, so if childhood vaccination rates are not dropping, then why the media coverage? It's because the COVID vaccination rates have plummeted. If you look at the, uh, I have a slide here from the. December 5th, 2022 COVID vax report from Washington state. And, uh, you know, we're below 18% in the school age population. And uh, so nobody wants this vaccine. And then here's a citation. So that as of November 7th, only 8.4% of eligible Americans were getting boosted. Now this is a real problem. So uh, is Pfizer going to say, wow, we made a hundred billion last year. I guess that was just a windfall. So we're going to fall back to our normal 10. No, they're going to find a way. So uh, CDC is at, they added the COVID to the vaccines for children, which is government purchase. And then they added uh, the COVID vaccine to the recommended schedule, which gives them the liability protection. And also most states use that uh, as their basis for what the school requirements are. So the CDC has added COVID, adding COVID vaccines formally to the childhood schedule in February, 2023. State health departments really want to add it to the school requirements, but they've never tried to require a vaccine this unpopular before. Greater than 97% of parents consistently and voluntarily follow the recommended school schedule with only a 2.2% exemption rate. Currently, every family that wants COVID vaccines has ample opportunity to get them. Access is not an issue. I mean, you can pretty much get a COVID shot in the drive-through at Burgerville right now. So that's not a problem. So then public health is in a jam with three options. Option one is to add the COVID vaccine to the school requirements now, while students in 44 states have non-medical exemptions available. The likely outcome is families will continue to reject the COVID vaccine and exemption rates will be 70, 80%. Option two is to press for some type of a special COVID only emergency rule or other legal sleight of hand to designate no non-medical exemptions for COVID shots. 
this would be very blatant and obvious. The likely outcome is strong opposition and even more erosion of citizen trust in public health. But then option three is to attempt to deceive the public and legislators that large numbers of families are exempting from the standard vaccines and then just keeping the COVID on the down low, stoke fear and insist that to avert disaster, exemptions need to be revoked for all vaccines. And remember, we've got 97% voluntary compliance to the standard. Now, if they can do that, if they can convince the legislators that we have a real problem with the regular vaccines, we got to get rid of exemptions then non-medical exemptions would be removed as a legal principle and precedent after that public health would be free to add COVID or any other vaccines to the schedule. And then what would happen when the 97% who always complied now object and the public health says, oops, sorry, uh, we don't offer exemptions anymore. So it's COVID or no school. Now, uh, in one of my other talks, I have a slide that shows how every one of the professional organizations has the elimination of non-medical exemptions as formal adopted policy. American Medical Association, AAP, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, everybody does. And then at the same time, the all of the public employee groups have parallel, uh, parallel policy. And they also have policy that they think that the entire ACIP schedule should be required for school attendance. The only reason they're not is because they, they they couldn't get away with it. But if they if there was no exemptions allowed, then they would certainly start to work towards that objective. Now, this may seem like an implausible, devious strategy, but it's the, exactly the one used previously to deceive legislators and the public in states that have already lost all non-medical exemptions. In California and Connecticut, the exemption rate was only 2.5% when non-medical exemptions were revoked by legislators who were told vaccination rates were plummeting dangerously. In New York, the exemption rate was only 0.9% when non-medical exemptions were revoked by legislators who were told vaccination rates were plummeting dangerously. And that was, again, leapfrogging off of uh, measles. Uh, the COVID experience should be a wake-up call to all citizens that the right to exempt from a medical intervention is not an indulgence. The ability to opt out is a fundamental right and necessary tool for a parent or citizen to direct their medical care and maintain personal bodily autonomy and sovereignty. So what would happen if large numbers of students did exempt? Would we see death and destruction? No. We know this from experience in 1969, there were only a few vaccines and compared to today, only 26 states had school attendance rules. Now I moved to Washington state from another state and graduated from high school and never submitted a vaccination record. And we did not have an on-campus morgue, crematorium or graveyard. Uh, and, and the crazy thing is, is the number of students, I remember the competition for perfect attendance. And it wasn't just in the grade, it was in individual classrooms. We would have numerous children that had perfect attendance for the school year. And I, I can't, re I don't recall the last time I heard of that uh, uh, contemporaneously. And, you know, and, and as a kid just growing up, I remember years when we never went to the doctor. Uh, as compared to the, you know, the, the health that we see now. And I mean, my, my brother and I, we were on a first name basis with the guys in the cast room over at the uh, interstate hospital because we were busting stuff all the time. But in terms of infectious or other type of uh, illnesses, we very few of those. So do, do you need, a, is there a break built in here, uh, Bernadette? Because this is, this would be kind of a good spot to, 
if, if or, or not, or you tell me. Yeah, yeah, you're in about two minutes. Nathan will be playing the music okay. and we'll be going to break. So we can just do a little chat here up until the break and then we can continue on. Um, this is just, this is just fantastic. And I can't stress enough that what we need to do is really begin to educate the legislators about this, because this is massive what we need to do. You know, the, 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 when I first started to become involved in this, what I, is that the average legislator, if he's, especially if he's older, he has no idea how many shots there are. That's number one. And then, uh, and even, so even if they're aware of that, then they don't know how exactly are, uh, how exactly do exemptions work in their state? What are the requirements? You know, uh, how many, again, what's the procedure? What's the process? And I, I know when I was interacting with some of the older legislators in 2011, you know, they remember the two or three DTAP and the oral polio they got. And it's like, what the heck is wrong with these people? And uh, they had no idea of how, you know, uh, how substantial the schedule is today. They really don't. Um, I'm not quite even sure where to go there in my head. It's just spinning with trying to figure out ideas. I feel like. I feel like they're coming at it so hard and heavy that it's all hands on deck needed uh, to protect this. And there, I hear the music. Um, so we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to hear more from Carl. And then we're also going to be talking about some legislation that is very concerning uh, that's happening in Washington State. And you know what happens on the West Coast tries to move every direction. So you've been listening to um, an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHDTV. We will be right back. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. Were you harmed by the COVID-19 pandemic response? Were you or a loved one injured by the vaccines or the hospital protocols? Did you lose your business during the lockdowns, your job from the mandates? Did the school closures and forced masking hurt your children? Did your family suffer spiritually and emotionally from the church closures? You are valued. You are seen. Sharing your story can help begin the healing process. Truth and Accountability Project Washington, TAPWA, through Informed Choice Washington, is holding a listening session event this Saturday, January 28th from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Wenatchee Convention Center. Doors open at 1 o'clock. Come hear from NBA legend John Stockton, a rising voice for medical freedom, and many other important voices from within our community. Come to build community, to create a historical record, to find help and hope. To pre-register or request to tell your story, go to informedchoicewa.org and search Wenatchee. Or find TAPWA on Facebook for more event information. Sponsored by Informed Choice Washington. 
Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me the love. We need a revolution. Hello and welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. I'm going to start the second hour as I did the first, uh, reminding listeners that the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of Children's Health Defense, because we're going to be talking about some legislation in this coming hour and some other things. And so I just want to put it out there that these views are ours and ours only. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are with us. I'm getting some texts and emails as this show is ongoing saying, yay, love this programming. So thank you all so much. So we're going to get back to uh, co-host Javier Figueroa joining from Idaho. And we've got the wonderful Carl Kanthik, who is in Southwest Washington, um, coming with his great presentation, Carl. So uh, thank you so much. And you know, on that break, I, I never can turn my darn brain off. So you triggered a thought and it spiraled and spiraled and spiraled. And where I had found a little lemon today when I was in at the Capitol here in Nashville, but mm, not going my way. I think I found a little wiggle solution. So thank you, Carl. <laughs> well, Can't welcome. share what that is yet, but maybe at the end of right. session, I can share what that was. <laughs> well, and I, and I want to say for people that are, you know, that are, if you're an advocate, I've got two videos up right now. Uh, on my Substack, so it's my name, lowercase k a r l k a n t h a k dot Substack dot com, and one of them is titled "The Hidden Agenda Against School Vaccine Exemptions," and uh, the other one is specific to uh, Connecticut. Well, it, it, and there's some overlap between the two of them, but you know when so the the basic idea is that the pharma public health slash pharma, who are basically the same thing today. They achieved 98% saturation of the pediatric market in the 90s and then logically thought, boy, this would be great if we could do this to adults. They looked at the adults they had uh, uh, in their purview who were primarily healthcare, and they were only getting about 40% compliance to the annual flu shot, except in facilities and areas where they had mandates. So then at that point, the plan was developed to, uh, to have a, to, to mandate the entire population uh, but then they realize it's going to be a process. And the, the, one of the important parts of that process is eliminating exemptions in the school age population so that adults can't turn and point to that later on. And then, uh, you know, another and then when you you know, when you talk about like my brain was working. So if you think about from a financial standpoint for Pfizer, you're losing all of your adult mandates right now. OK, they're being overturned. Right. So. And kids under 18 are about 25% of the population, get roughly. roughly. So if you're losing the ability to mandate to 75%, then you double down on mandating to that 25%. And uh, how much did they increase the price when they went into vaccines for children? 
four times. So you basically, if you can mandate that 25%, even though you lost the 75%, because you increase the rate four times, you, you're still making the same amount of money. That's speculation though. I mean, usually I have a slide that says if I, if I make a mistake and say liar, I mean misrepresent, but. <laughs> I, li I like it. I like it very much. So do you have more in your presentation? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got, okay. I've got, I've got a little bit more and then. Okay. So, all right. So then this is the documentation then for, you know, people, there's this, the general zeitgeist impression of vaccination is that there's always been rules and that every time a new vaccine was introduced, it automatically shot to hundred percent. And then until the anti-vaxxers got a hold of it and then pushed the rate down. So this just shows, you know, which states had and didn't have rules uh, as of uh, 1969. And then, uh, then if you look, so this is uh, from the CDC showing the vaccination rates. This is 62 to 90. And you see the DTAP there, you know, 60s, 70s. And then the MMR, that's not an MMR, that's a measles containing vaccine. The MMR didn't come out until the 70s. But, you know, you see that we're dramatically lower rates than we have today. And there was not widespread death and destruction. And uh, so, you know, I, I contend that we could drop school rules tomorrow and would, nothing would change. So then uh, when this all, when the, all of this started to happen, you know, again, I didn't remember losing any, any of my friends to any of the childhood infections or ever hearing about anyone dying from a childhood infection while I was in school. Washington has this beautiful uh, summary, 1920 to 1982. And uh, so, and I kind of look at 1970 to 1980 as the kind of the post-vaccine era, but before school rules. So during those 10 years, there were in the state two measles, morts, uh, five mumps, one rubella, two pertussis, tenderteria. And this is of all population, not school age, not, and you know, and when their numbers are this low, you're talking about, uh, this is not healthy people. These are uh, people that were already close to the, you know, close to the brink. So in the 1970s, school attendance rules were not a response to high mortality in school age populations or any population. Routine childhood illnesses stopped being fatal post-World War II after the introduction of penicillin and other antibiotics into clinical practice. And then the other thing that was happening was just the general improvement in the economics of the country and sanitation. So children with access to nutrition, sanitary living conditions, and a pediatrician tolerated the infections very successfully. So then this is the measles uh, for the state. And, uh, you know, this is the uh, from 1920 to 1982. And uh, the other part to remember about the 50s is that's the baby boom. They, they were having a birth weight rate equal to today with about a 240 million total population. They were having 4 million kids a year. So this is, this is a lot of the population having, you know, being kids. And then, uh, but, uh, so this is the, basically that same verbiage on the side, but you see that the uh, mortality dropped to zero in, in 1968, which was 12 years before school rules. And in 59 and 60, if you add that together, 30,000 cases with a, uh, uh, just two, uh, one each of, of those years, 16,000 one year, 14,000 the next year. And uh, so it, you know, measles in a, in a well-nourished population is, is quite tolerable. So who was dying from routine childhood infections after World War II? So this is from Life magazine. Now, I, I, I'm old enough that I remember we had Life and Look, which were coffee table books and, and large format, beautiful photography. 
And this uh, story here, uh, a photojournalist story, War on Poverty, po Portraits from an Appalachian Battleground, 1964. So this was in conjunction with President Johnson's War on Poverty. My grandparents, they saved every issue, uh, you know, went in the, so then this is a, uh, in, in a shack near Neon, Kentucky, Delphi Mobley comforted daughter Reva, who was ill with measles. Proper medical care was beyond her $125 monthly welfare pay. But more importantly is that if Mrs. Mobley's children had the, the necessary nutrition and living conditions, there'd be no need for medical care. And uh, clearly, you know, you can, uh, there's not, not a lot of fresh food going on in that house. This is another uh, angle of the family on the couch. And, uh, you know, for people in these conditions, then clearly measles is a risk, as are any infections, any and all infections, not just the vaccine targeted ones. It's kind of like that business about immune compromised kids at school. If you're so immune compromised that a vaccine targeted infection could get you, well, what are you doing there? What, what about strep? What about all the more common ones? And then uh, I, I put this slide in just because this doll is so creepy. And uh, Nadine McFall, have, you know, this uh, a huge doll, its wardrobe long since lost and never replaced. But, uh, you know, here's a, uh, 1953, seven people are living in this shack. Now, you can see by looking at it, there's not a flush toilet in that shack. There's not a refrigerator. There's that, you know, again, if you live in these conditions, then, then that, that. And, you know, one of the things when I think about the just the, the wheelbarrows of money that went for COVID, how much improvement in the people, you know, the, the opportunity cost of that funding is just uh, astounding. Now, what else was happening in the 60s? So you had civil rights legislation and the war on poverty. So there was no food stamps. There was no Medicaid. There was no Medicare. Uh, you didn't have equal access. So the, uh, that's the citations on the left are about the uh, food stamp program. But then on the right, if you look at the door there, you can see it, you, it clearly says colored obstetrics ward. And that uh, story it's on a PBS is talking about, you know, the, 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 how high the mortality rates was for African-American women and, and both for them and their, and their babies before they were, you know, had uh, equal access to healthcare. And then th this is a Brady Bunch. So this was the experience that I had and all of my peers, the Brady Bunch season one, episode 13, is there a doctor in the house? It was aired on December 26, 1969. Peter comes home from school with the measles. So naturally Carol calls the doctor, her doctor who happens to be a woman. Meanwhile, Mike calls his doctor a man. Soon all the kids come down with the measles and the household is in an uproar and yet another battle of the sexes as the girls want a female doctor and the boys a male doctor. And Peter did not go to the hospital. Uh, Cindy did not die. And uh, there's one that, uh, scene that I have to get that I didn't. There's a at the end of the program, Carol has a chalkboard with the kids' names down one side and the infections down the other one. And she's very cheerfully saying, "Well, we can snap off measles here." And then, uh, what's the what's the, their housekeeper's name? Alice. Anyway, Alice. So then Alice walks in and she goes, well, put my name on there now. And she, you know, for they're pretending like that. But when you read the, the dialogue down there, you know, Greg says this is a, they're playing Monopoly. You know, they're not clearly in extreme distress. And if this was in the, uh, if people were really having extreme outcomes from measles, this would be extremely poor taste, you know. This would be like us trying to minimize some sort of a severe disease today. So anyway, Greg says, this is a life, isn't it, Marsha? Yeah, you have to get beat. You sure can't beat the measles. And then Jan says, yeah, no medicine. 
Greg says, yeah, inside or out, no shots. And Jan says, don't even mention shots. Now that tells me the writers on this program didn't even know that there was a measles vaccine available at that time. That's the, 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 if they knew about it, then they would, that would have, they would have worked that into the plot. I mean, for them to say, yeah, no shots that that means they didn't even know there was a vaccine available at that point. And again, no, you know, nobody of any adult age was ever concerned about it. One of the slides I have that I'll be presenting tomorrow for a group out of California is that the California of department of health since 2000, at least 2015 has told their healthcare providers that two injections of MMR, or, and or an immune test is not considered protective. So they must wear full PPE when they treat a measles case in the hospital. Now, never when I was a kid was a doctor afraid of measles because he already had it. And if they, uh, if they're, they don't consider that protective, well, if, if, a, if, if the measles vaccine can't protect a doctor from catching it from a patient, how in the world is it gonna protect one child from giving it to another or a teacher or anywhere in there? So then, uh, and then this is just showing that, uh, that, yeah, that's again, just showing the historical rates and we didn't hit the nineties. So, uh, you know, what this says is that, so overall then eliminating non-medical vaccine exemptions for attendance has nothing to do with health. The two goals to remove non-medical exemptions as a legal principle and precedent so that adult mandates can be expanded and reach 97% or higher establishing pre-cradle to grave mandatory vaccination for all with no opt-out. This is the biggest cash cow market in drug industry history. Join a medical freedom group today. And uh, so that, uh, Amen. that's- Amen. <laughs> Fantastic, Carl. Thank you so well, very I, much. No, and, and again, I'm trying to arm, I'm trying to arm the listeners and the watchers, you know, so that they can, they have something to answer with. Well, what about polio? Then you ask, well, how do you get polio? Uh, it just happens, doesn't it? <laughs> by not by low vaccination rates in Rockland, New York. <laughs> and yeah. then what, we're going to have a resurgence, a one case resurgence. Yeah. One case resurgence. So yeah, the, it's just <clears throat> the assault, you, public health being used as a weapon against us for ulterior motives. And there's layers and layers of motives. We're going to be talking about some of that in the next like 40 minutes that we have today. Um, I think Javier has um, um, something to show a photo that yep. a listener was um, has typed up the uh, comparative years um, and the vaccines that were required, if we can make that a little bit bigger. Um, what we're seeing on the screen here is a list of the shots that were required or on the CDC recommended list in 1983, and then the list from 2016. And you can see the huge difference. It And I'm not sure that it's even completely listing there all of them at this stage because yeah but um you know and now there's even more in 2022 i think there's been more added since so it, it's quite dramatic when you see them side by side and then there's multiple doses and what what it really gets down to so much of this is it's it's all about we need accurate data accurate science ethical science and we need to really make this a consumer protection issue. It's about, it's about the targeted infection and the, the, the vaccine or the 
fake vaccine uh, shot, the mRNA product um, being used to target that infection um, and, and its true risks and capabilities. We do not have scientific integrity and public health policy at all. No looking at unintended con consequences. They completely ignore that. Although mm -hmm. now the CDC is finally has done a study that reveals that the more aluminum adjuvant you you're exposed to in early infancy, um, it's something like for every 1000 micrograms of aluminum exposed to an early infancy, your the rate the risk of persistent asthma rises like I think it was like 18 to 23%. Don't quote me there. It was somewhere around that. I don't have that in front of me. But it's very concerning. What what I'm going to transition here, and Carl, I know you're going to have to go on to work. I think you've got to teach a karate class here in a sec. But hang out and talk with us as long as you can. Um, but Javier, now I want you to kind of take over. We're going to switch gears a little bit. And we're going to talk about some legislation that has been filed in Washington state. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, a bill, um, House Bill 1045, that is a pilot uh, universal income uh, program that they want to start. And they said that because of climate change, um, that we should expect infection quarantine and mass disabling events to be normal. And therefore the state needs to be able to give people an income. So they want to try this out. And this is a cash handout, no strings attached and you don't have to prove you need it. I mean, exactly. Blame yeah. it. it's, it's very concerning. But after that, a couple of days later, an even more alarming bill came. And this is, if you go look at some of the bills filed, it's, it's very concerning because there's bills to disarm um, uh, law-abiding good citizens uh, and to really create a nanny state in a way, a very totalitarian nanny state um, that really, to me, has no scientific integrity and really violates Nuremberg Code and our federal and state constitution as far as freedom of speech, freedom of choice, so many angles. So, Javier, do you want to go ahead and tell us about House Bill 1333? It's basically, as you stated, it's uh, it's going to be a payout for, um, and it's a pilot program. No, wait, the that's 1045. 1045. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have introduced what I would like to move today. 1045 was that pilot program for, for Evergreen Income for about 7,500 people. I would like to talk about the bill that was introduced about uh, domestic violent yeah. extremism. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. My apologies. No, that's okay. So, so again, what they're trying to codify here is they're trying to make uh, anything that is deemed by the state. And that's the language that, you know, when you, when you carve everything out, it's anything that the day that the state deems a terrorist act or a violation or an imposition on a minority group in any form, in any way, they'll deem that a terrorist act. And the federal government is a fairly, I still consider it's fairly loose, but it's a much stricter definition of uh, terrorism. And domestic terrorism is a fairly new uh, new definition that is trying to be codified under the law. Uh, basically, it'll allow the state to, uh, to declare anyone a domestic terrorist, and that imposes a different set of uh, legal uh, 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 fines and imprisonments that, uh, you know, if, say, for example, you were at a rally and uh, there was a, a knife attack, it wouldn't be considered a uh, assault and battery with intent to harm, uh, it, depending on which rally you attended, 
and which side of that rally you were on, you may be deemed a domestic terrorist. And that is what and states uh, are doing this uh, individually, but the federal government also has also its own uh, uh, statutes on that. So it becomes very subjective when well, we're talking yeah. about that. Yeah, and and it's it's not even actual act of violence that has to have occurred. Right. What they're talking about is the potential to be um, a domestic terrorist, and they say it's it's people who are purveying misinformation, disinformation, and anti-government sentiment. And excuse me, but I grew up believing that the more free I feel about criticizing my government, the more free my society actually was. People in the United States of America should not feel threatened in any way to stand up and say, I oppose this aspect of what my government is doing, or my government's too big, or that agency's too big, or we need to rebuild what's going on because mm -hmm. it's not serving the people. That is the hallmark. If you want to silence anti-government sentiment, move to China. Yeah, you know. Um, and there's a big and there's a big uh, there's a big difference here. The state of Washington is trying to impose those rules at a state level that the federal government has not been able to impose at a national level. And this is this is part and parcel, and this is happening in every state. You're seeing the same legislative language used over and over again to get these being sold as, well, we're trying to be compassionate, we're trying to make sure that certain groups that feel unsafe, and again, feel unsafe because they feel threatened. Again, very vague, very undefined language that basically says, we will define it. When we see it, we'll know it's like pornography. We know it when we see it, right? No, yeah. <laughs> this is about, this is a fundamental issue. Freedom, sorry, Carl, go ahead. Right, oh, and listen. go ahead, Carl. I, I was just, just going to say, so the uh, the other part about free speech, because in the, in, the, in the Twitter files, and I've been following that somewhat, you know, and they're talking about, you know, you have various people that are saying, my speech was suppressed and it was true or accurate. And then Mark Changizi is talking about that doesn't even matter. Right. Is that is that that whether or not it's true or accurate is secondary from the fact you have the right to say it. <laughs> so in, in some ways, you know, we don't want to be saying, hey, that you don't have the right. I, I have the right to say that that I believe that, uh, you know, that the governor of the state of Washington is an alien. And uh, even if that's not accurate, uh, you know, I have the right to be able to say that under freedom of speech. So mm -hmm. that's. That's part of these, uh, you know, these very vague, you know, as you say, there's ill-defined. And again, we don't have to be accurate. And there, and then I've seen in some of the language, I don't know if it was in this, I was just in a legal training as you know, part of the school thing, but they're talking about malinformation, which is true right. information, but that uh, hampers the ability of the government to do what they're trying to do. So malinformation would be if you knew that, there was a problem with some program and then you publicize that, but then it impaired the government's ability to do what they're trying to do, even though yeah. what you're saying is correct. Yeah. So that's, that's that, disturbing. That's exactly it. And it's hard. Go ahead. And turn it down. Yeah. Well, I, I want to read to you. So this, this bill, they cite um, attorney general Ferguson's study published in 2022, 
Um, and we're going to go into some layers here about who he hired to help with this study. But this is so concerning. I want to read to you this particular paragraph here that says, um, Although, uh, although this is a useful, okay, definition, okay, uh, the, the federal definition fails to capture the full scope of the problem Washington state faces, which encompasses other forms of extremist and political violence, threats, coercion, and intimidation, online disinformation. Well, first of all, that's what public health is doing. So anyway, and the governor, extremist, <laughs> right? Extremist recruitment and government infiltration efforts and the general spread of extreme white supremacist, anti-government and other ideologies. They don't say what's the opposite of the white supremacists. Some of the people who've been um, marching and burning police cars and capturing parts of cities, right? I mean, there's nothing on the extreme left here, just extreme right. Um, accordingly, rather than, I'm reading again from the paper, accordingly, rather than exclusively addressed domestic terrorism per se, these recommendations seek to best support Washington state to respond to this panoply of challenges, which together combine to create the threat of, indeed are often precursors to precursors mm -hmm. to acts of domestic terrorism consistent with the approach taken by the FD, FBI and DHS uh, that's Department of Homeland Security we describe this um, using this umbrella term domestic violent extremism or DVE relatedly because effective state intervention to address these threats has the potential to implicate speech or association that may be protected by the First Amendment or the individual right to bear arms protected by the Second Amendment, we include a recommendation that all stakeholders involved in the whole of society response outlined here, whole of society response, here and be trained to have a solid high level understanding of constitutional principles that may be implicated by the state's response to DVE. Mm. Okay. Mm. So, I mean, that, that is so, um, I mean, where do I even go there? Just what they're saying is <clears throat> some of the measures they're going to propose will tr trample on our protected constitutional rights but they want this high level approach so that, you know, it's, well, it's for the greater good is basically what they're saying. We're going to trample on right. your rights for the greater good. We don't have to prove it. We're just going to do it. It's to prevent. And anytime you get into the, the realm of prevention, you're, you're, you're accusing somebody of being in danger to society who has not demonstrated they have actually done any danger. Just like, exactly. just like somebody not given a COVID shot who's perfectly healthy, you're going to assume they're dangerous and say and discriminate against them because, gosh, they might be, right? And they're, the framework they intend to have this community-based is, is the model of public health. Right. So they want public health infrastructure at all levels of community with neighbor looking at neighbor and, and people in the school system, everybody keeping their eye out. Wow. Is that anti-government sentiment? Well, you're spreading mm -hmm. misinformation. You're not wearing a mask that, that, that violates, you know, and everybody turned and, you know, re-education camps. And I mean, the whole thing, I mean, it's really just terrifying. And, um, 
and then Javier, do you have pulled up there? There was the the group that um, AG Ferguson yes says that they hired to help with some of the data gathering. So if you can show that that group for us, and we can go over one second. Yeah, yep. um, Rabin. And again, this is the Rabin group, and this is just amazing. The the group. <laughs> You're gonna <laughs> laugh when you start seeing the the groups that are on this. It's it's the who's who of uh, the usual yeah. suspects. And this is um, like a, 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 a I forget I always forget what they're actually called. It's a um, it's a political. What what are they? they're not lobbyists? They're not marketing. They what do they couch themselves? Policy advisors or something? Policy think advisors, tank. yeah. Think tank kind of. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So this is the great part. They have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as the Raven Group, and this is where they're going to draw their pool. Well, the, this from. is, they said uh, current and past customers include. So I guarantee you that many in the Raven group that they represent, they draw a lot of people from these philanthropic and corporate groups to supply the information that they need. So yes. again, you've got some groups like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, uh, Hewlett Packard, Walter Kites, the United Nations Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. So you have a, a who's who of the of of people that used to attend the World Economic Forum. Yeah, they're not attending this year, but uh, they used to. And of course, you've got uh, corporate groups as well that are in there. And, uh, and, and, and nonprofits. So we got Pfizer. Pfizer's on that list. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. So that that is something that you, that is very uh, telling uh, in that. Uh, the, the groups are advising Ferguson right. and on that approach. The, Go ahead. The other thing that's really important is one of the groups that they've worked with in the past, or it might be currently, is Democratic Governors Association, something like that. Only the Democratic yes. governors, no Republican. It was the same with that McKinsey and Company, the one that helped push opioids and then, then got some really gravy deals with states, including Washington, to do some paper pushing for the governor. They also only would work for they work for World Economic Forum and um, Democratic governors. It's that whole mentality, that whole side. And so right. those are the ones feeding into. Do you have the information on the woman that they brought yes. in? Yeah, she's concerning. So um, another uh, interesting uh, person, this is Dr. Cynthia. Um, let me check right over here. Share this. Cynthia Miller Idris. And again, her education, uh, she, the people that she advises are the, uh, are the ones where you have to really watch. Uh, her, her specialization is in polarization and extremist, extreme, extremism research and innovation lab at the American University in Washington, DC. So what she does is she specializes on how do people get radicalized? And again, what's interesting is that uh, information, sharing information, uh, of course, changes people's minds because it provides information and they have to discern. But the moment you start saying, hey, there's information that radicalizes people. Okay. Radicalization is a very vague term. You need to define it very carefully. And usually, uh, I think under federal law, radicalization means um, very specifically 
inciting people to uh, do violence, to basically go out and, and uh, overthrow governments in that, in, in, that, in that essence. Civil rights, by the, by the definitions that, that these groups of people are now imposing, would have called them radicals and radicalizers because they were changing people's minds. So the, the language that's being used, the, quote, experts that they are bringing forth, it, you know, they, and again, here's the hate in the homeland. This was her book. Um, and again, the, quote, tiki torch that was, uh, you know, that became famous with the, uh, I think, 2017 Charlottesville um, um, yeah. uh, rally or riot, depending on which side of the political spectrum you are. Um, you know, again, the, the symbology and the language that's being used is uh, concerning at many, many levels. And again, like you said, Ferguson did not go out and seek the different opinions from different political groups or organizations. It was very much one-sided in that in that regard. And what we're seeing now is this is being um, replicated across other states to where they're trying to introduce each state to create their own domestic terrorist laws or definitions yeah. and creating committee groups instead of having the legislators confront it head on. So it's going to be a recommendation by a committee, but then it's going to tell the legislators, this is now considered domestic terrorism. And, and this is coming off the heels of a couple of years of society being led to believe that mm -hmm. if you vote Republican, you're a racist, evil person, right? Yeah. And the division has been huge. And so it, it is so very concerning. And it's all just aimed at e extremist uh, right, nothing mm -hmm. on the left. There's, on the left. You know, it just, it, and it sweeps up anybody who isn't um, aligned with their agenda, what they want to do. So there were, there are two other um, entities that Ferguson cites in his paper that he referred mm -hmm. to. One was um, a constitutional group that claims to be about, and in some instances, they may do good work. I just started exploring them to um, protect people's constitutional rights. But when mm -hmm. you look at it, they are, all the things that they have said, it's just a to me, a complete twisting of, of claiming it's, it's the constitutional set. Like for instance, some of the articles that they have on that website is saying you know, the very deadly January 6th attack. Well, <laughs> the language the, is very, very, yeah, slanted. Everybody who died in that were either killed at the hands of the police or they had a heart attack afterward. You know, the rioters themselves did not, you know, the people that they say, you know, are the evildoers, as, as George Bush used to say, they didn't cause you know, any of that, or it wasn't in, nothing on them. It was a, a police officer who, who shot a woman. Um, and then afterward, there were some heart attack deaths and a suicide and things like mm -hmm. that. Anyway, just the whole span. And then a, a final one, Javier, um, they go after the sheriffs. Now, yes. 
I learned just through all of COVID, began to learn my, my, the history and the legal structure of the United States. And until then, I didn't understand the role of the sheriff. And I'm still not completely right. up on it, but I do know that the sheriff is the law of the land in his county and can make a lot of decision. They swear an oath to the state constitution and the federal constitution. And throughout COVID, throughout this nation and, and in 38 of the 39 counties in Washington state, those sheriffs often would not um, enforce a COVID or a vaccine mandate. Yes. They might say this is a mandate that the governor has passed down, but they did not enforce it. They didn't say you got to leave anything like that because they believed it was unconstitutional and they didn't want to follow it. But now Attorney General Ferguson's office and one of the experts that they hired, there's papers that have been published out there at a national level level saying that there really is no such thing as a constitutional sheriff and what they're doing is illegal. They're trying to depower that local protection, which is a huge concern. And I'm hoping that some sheriffs and some legal people are on that because we have got to secure. Yes, um, Carl. Well, yeah, I'm going to say on that and then is that uh, that so the, the, the creation of these studies, I have a talk on that one, too. Because you have these groups that are like, they're like paperback novel pulp mills that are grinding out whatever they, they determine what the result is going to be. And then they obtain the, whoever the personnel are that are going to uh, obtain, achieve that result. And then they'll have it peer reviewed by other people that are in the same thing and then claim that that's authoritative. And then I just have a couple things and then I'm going to go. So besides the democratic governors association, you have a democratic attorney general association too. That's right. So they're, they're coordinating like that. And, you know, this business of potentials, threats and such, uh, if, uh, uh, and I'm to plug my Substack one more time, I have a, one of my posts is, is it an emergency proclamation or threat of an emergency proclamation? <laughs> because the law says the law is for when, disorder and it says the governor must terminate the state of emergency when order has been restored in the affected area. Now we at no point in time ever reached an, a, a, a state of disorder except mm-hmm. in the unemployment system when they threw a million right. people in there when it didn't have the capacity for it. So he maintained a state of emergency for 975 days and when asked what is the criteria to end the emergency, there is none. That means by definition, there's no criteria to be in the emergency. Yep. And when you go through the comprehensive emergency planning, there is a, a chart or that says, you know, that, it, that the infection is supposed to be a certain level of, of uh, a transmissibility and a certain level of dangerous and untreatable, blah, blah. They ignored all of that. It was either fabricated or ignored. And, uh, but again, so if it's simply the threat of, of an emergency, you know, we have the Cascadia earthquake is going to hit at some point. Rainier is going to blow at some point. There's fires every year. So yeah. we'd be in a perpetual state of emergency. We were in a 975 day emergency based simply on his opinion that, well, I, uh, you know, when they asked him, he's on TBW. Well, I'll know when it's time to end it. And the fact that he arbitrarily chose Halloween just validated that there was no criteria whatsoever to right. be in that emergency. So I agree. I share your, yeah. I share your concerns here. And, and, uh, but, uh, so I'm going to have to 
I'm going to have to wrap up. And I just want to say again, I thank you so much for this opportunity. And uh, uh, and then uh, I'll let you know what happened on the, the California talk tomorrow. And if it's going to be somewhere for people that are watching or listening to this uh, before March 10th and 11th, I'll be in uh, Tucson, Arizona. And to, you go to TucsonSummit.org, has information about that. And I'll be fleshing out these different ideas. And again, you know, there's I have content uh, that it's all I can do to keep it uh, short. But I thank you so much. And I'm going to go ahead and drop out now. Great to see you, Javier. See you, Bernadette. See you, Carl. Bye. I, we can't hear you, Bernadette. There we go. Oops, sorry. Um, he's go. such a treasure. And, you know, I love it when people take what's their passion and they just run with it because there's so many things that need addressed. And, you know, everybody out there who can hear us, you too have a gift. Whatever it is you love to do, find that little something and just go for it. Be part of the solution. You don't have to, you know, do the things that we're doing if that's not what you know, speaks to you, but we all have got to get involved and stand up. And it really is, they're, they're, they're building the infrastructure in Washington state to have this really um, very concerning nanny state, totalitarian, just, you know, big yeah. brother watching, neighbor watching, um, it, I, I'm not every, it, it's so funny. So many laws, uh, bills here that has been filed in, in Tennessee um, are protective of children, protecting of parental right. rights, protected of individual rights. And the opposite bills are being filed in Washington. Washington Just the opposite. California, Oregon. Take away yep. your rights in those ways. And um, what's, what's amazing is that, you know, everything that is being done right now including the public health measures, including the domestic terrorism task force, it's being constructed so that the opinion of authority is going to decide whether or not they can declare something, uh, either health emergency or domestic terrorist uh, incident. Um, and then again, they're using public health and climate crises as the joining uh, point to allow this uh, to occur. And again, it's mostly to justify why we're doing this. Now, for example, have we seen an incidence or an increased rate in the state of Washington or in any state for malaria, for tuberculosis, for any of these other conditions or diseases that, you know, for the past 10 years? And the answer is no. Maybe there's been a blip here, a slight increase over there, but that is mostly due to immigration and migration of people from other countries or other states moving to other states in the United States. And those patterns are recognized, but also on the fact that the public health infrastructure that is there to support is falling apart in some cases, right? Right. And their their whole approach is what we have been talking about on this show since it began is we need a revolution in health. Exactly. So public health, they've got their vaccine tools by gum and they're not going to let go of those for anything. Nope. They refuse to broaden out and fully support support individuals being empowered to support their immune system. There was a meme going around and I think it was something Joe Rogan had said. It was so cool. It said something like he was amazed at how 
I think bleep bleep crazy, um, public health became when you dared cure yourself without their permission. <laughs> I saw that. Yes. You know? Right. So. <laughs> They, they, you know, because we can, I mean, even let's, let's just play, let's just give them climate change, which I, I really don't want to do, but let's just pretend climate change happens, increased disease. Javier, my solution, the biological scientific solution would be, okay, human beings have immune systems. If they've got adequate nutrition, sanitation, right? Um, access to, you know, the, the, the simplest sort of long-term been out there for a long time, drugs like ivermectin, um, they can weather through this. They, you know, Absolutely. we've got that resilience. There's no reason. And I often give the comparison, oh, they say climate change, people are going to be exposed to things, bugs are going to grow. Well, you know, you can, you can get on an airplane and go from Alaska exactly. to Hawaii and experience complete different, and your body will adapt. There's different bugs. They freak you out, but you get used to the cockroaches scuttling when you turn on the light when you go to Hawaii. <laughs> Except exactly. right now, it's creepy. Um, so, you know, I mean, we can simplify, overcome. And overcoming doesn't mean we have to be dependent on the government to give us an income. And overcoming does not mean that we have to bow down to the pharmaceutical industry and use whatever product they want to inject us with. No, there it's is. It's all about dependence. It's, there's a whole other way of living and being and doing, mm -hmm. and they're shoving this down our throats, and we got to, have got to rise up peacefully, peacefully, Absolutely. peacefully as a nation, as individuals. They want us to look. I'm so proud of our people, Javier, yeah. because we have been at rallies. In you know, before I moved to Tennessee, I, you know, a lot of us at Informed Choice Washington, we were going to the unmask rallies and the reopen Washington rallies and bringing our signs and you know, meeting people and all these greatly new awakened individuals. Um, and sometimes the crowd would be seated. Like one time we were at the Capitol and they still had the barbed wire up, and there was a whole row of these beautiful young people who were part of the National Guard. They were called up to protect yeah. the Capitol, right? And I went up right up to the fence and I just said, thank you for serving your country. I don't believe in what they, why they sent you here, but by gum, thank you for serving your country and doing your duty. But I said, I want to educate you. So they were a captured audience. So I gave them some information and, and, and they stood there listening. And, um, but then we, we began to actually talk to the crowd who had gathered on the other side of the barbed wire. And, and within the crowd, there was somebody we did not know who started saying, um, uh, um, storm the gate, storm the gate. And somebody yep. echoed it in the crowd. Well, you know, this is a ploy, you know, that is done in order to fire up crowds to get them riled up to do something. It, it was done on January 6th when the mm -hmm. police opened the doors and let people in. Oh, yeah. right? It was instigated. They tried to instigate that with us, but most of us gathered there were like gray haired grandmas and grandpas, some of the older legislators, you know, and we're like, Shut up. No. Good. Don't say who are you? You're not part of our crowd. We will Shame not. Shame them into silence. Yeah, we will not. We are peaceful. Mm -hmm. And the, the up in Canada, when they had the million trucks, all kinds of things were seated within that gathering to yes. try to make them look violent. And, no, and everybody just get your cameras out, spotlight it, show it, refuse to be triggered, right? And, yeah. and we have got to stay that course as things get worse and worse and worse. Um, yes. But yeah. Um, well, and what you're going to see is you're going to start seeing more, more overt actions by governments 
imposing more and more, dr more draconian measures or trying to instigate more actions like hiring bad actors, using taxpayer money to hire bad actors. So before we, we, we go off here, this is the last portion of uh, Ferguson's study, which is the conclusion. And I think there's just an important highlight to be made here. So this is, I'll just quote it verbatim here. Uh, or ver verbatim, depending on how you like to pronounce it. Conclusion, there is little evidence that state-based efforts to combat domestic terrorism will enhance criminal penalties, dedicated surveillance, or attempts to exclude so-called extremists from law enforcement have been effective in light of the federal government's jurisdiction over all significant cases and the propensity for these types of state efforts to be misused against social justice advocates. Okay, but break give, that apart. Yeah, I we I need to hear that again. So, the 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 basically what Ferguson is is summarizing here is that uh, uh, state based efforts to, to combat domestic terrorism with all the enhanced criminal penalties, surveillance, training, uh, or to try and quote exclude, and this is what I find really offensive, so called extremists from law enforcement. So if you have an opinion or political opinion and you're serving in your law enforcement unit, county or state or city, if you have an opinion or a position that is deemed extremist, you, you're basically looked on as someone that is promoting a particular violent uh, form or basically discriminatory form of law enforcement. But here's the other part. There's a propensity for this for these types of state efforts to be misused against social justice advocates. Now, this is Ferguson, I think, giving away the game a little bit. Right. Um, so social justice advocates includes those individuals that we saw over the past few years that were breaking windows, looting, yeah. burning police yes. cars, taking over whole parts of cities. Those were social Chaz. justice advocates and not domestic extremists correct right, right? um yeah can and you again, imagine if any if anyone they label an anti-vaxxer had done those exact same actions because we we say you know my grandmother was killed by this vaccine my child was injured by this and so we're angry and you need to notice us if we had done that we weren't be oh. social justice advocates we would be labeled extremists exactly and again we don't, those are tactics we don't do that yeah no and again you see the, the language social justice advocates okay so that means that blm and tifa any of these groups or uh, or basically, you know, uh, Rose City, Antifa, Black Bloc, all these groups, as long as you say you're social justice, you can get away with doing anything, starting fires, breaking windows, burning cars down, almost killing people, and in some cases, actually killing people. So, and what's, what's even more concerning is that there is a movement at the, um, uh, at the DA level of saying to the police officers, do not enforce certain laws, or we're not going to prosecute certain cases. And this has been seen over and over and over again. You couple this with the study and these laws that are now being uh, looked at, not only in the state of Washington, but in other states, you're looking at a recipe for combining, well, you know, we really have to consider the mental health state of certain groups before we start, you know, before we can label them violent extremists, or 
we should label them violent extremists if they have a certain mental state. This is the weaponization of public health and psychiatric health that is going to be implemented with this with this new law. It is an introduction to it. Yes. And we're going to leave people empowered because right now you've got freedom of speech. You've got freedom yes. of showing up in assembly. And now is the time in your state. Go examine what bills have been filed in Washington state. It's House Bill 1333. Contact your legislators. Tell them absolutely no way. Show up, write them, email, go to committee hearings. Let your voice be known. Write letters to the editor. We need everybody standing up to protect freedom in this nation and not let it become this this overseeing state that's going to take away today you've got the right to speak if this passes you may not be able to have your opinion about covid about the government exactly right exactly and i remember one interview where they this was after the fall of the berlin wall they asked the the head of the stasi says what was the greatest mistake that east germany made he said giving the technology and the power to an intelligence unit to spy on everyone yeah. in the West. The moment you give that power and that technology to any organization, that's the end of your freedoms. Oh dear. Yeah. Well, we can still do this, people. I believe we in can. you. Everybody, get active. Spend this weekend doing some research, loving on your children, getting out there, hug a tree. We still need that good biome. So you've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD-TV. We will be back next week. Bye now. Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, President and Founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PGI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PJI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit pji.org. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Were you harmed by the COVID-19 pandemic response? Were you or a loved one injured by the vaccines or the hospital protocols? Did you lose your business during the lockdowns, your job from the mandates? Did the school closures and forced masking hurt your children? Did your family suffer spiritually and emotionally from the church closures? You are valued. You are seen. Sharing your story can help begin the healing process. Truth and Accountability Project Washington, TAPWA, through Informed Choice Washington, is holding a listening session event this Saturday, January 28th, from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Wenatchee Convention Center. Doors open at 1 o'clock. 
Come hear from NBA legend John Stockton, a rising voice for medical freedom, and many other important voices from within our community. Come to build community, to create a historical record, to find help and hope. To pre-register or request to tell your story, go to informedchoicewa.org and search Wenatchee. Or find TAPWA on Facebook for more event information. Sponsored by Informed Choice Washington.